This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. The seminary academic theory has been over-influenced by the Enlightenment in ways that the academics themselves are not always aware. Hello, welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm Jonathan Master, joined as always by James Dolezal. And today we also have the privilege of being joined by Craig Carter. Craig is a professor of theology at Tyndale University College and Seminary. And he's the author of a recent book, very provocative book, entitled Interpreting Scripture with the Great Tradition, Recovering the Genius of Pre-Modern Exegesis. I've enjoyed reading the book. James and I have enjoyed discussing it. And we're glad to have Craig on with us today. So thank you for joining us. Uh, Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I want to ask at the beginning what the driving force is of this book. You talk about recovering pre-modern exegesis. What's wrong with modern exegesis? Well, by modern exegesis, I'm uh, talking about something that I call the liberal project. And the liberal project is the process of trying to restate Christian doctrine in the context of the limitations of modern metaphysics. Now, modern metaphysics, as I lay out in the book, is a repudiation of the theological metaphysics that emerges out of Nicaea, out of the Christian Orthodox doctrine of God. And so once that metaphysics is rejected in modernity, it calls all of Christian doctrine into great, it makes it very problematic, and it makes it very difficult to interpret Scripture. And so I want to emphasize how Nicene metaphysics exegesis and dogma work together in orthodoxy to create orthodox theology. And that project is imperiled by the modern rejection of Nicene metaphysics. And so that's the deep reason behind the problem that we see in historical criticism. Dr. Carter, the very mention of metaphysics uh, is certainly chilling to some uh, modern listeners. Uh, We've been taught that we can actually get along very well without having a metaphysics to which we are committed, uh, and that, in fact, that's preferable because that keeps our commitment to the scriptures and to the gospel unfettered to human systems of thought. I know this isn't the position you take in your book. Why is it necessary for the Christian pastor, for instance, to have a firm grasp on basic metaphysical principles in approaching the scripture? Well, everybody has metaphysics, consciously or unconsciously, good metaphysics or bad metaphysics. Metaphysics that grows out of the teaching of Scripture or metaphysics that grows out of the rejection of Scripture. So everyone has metaphysics, and it behooves us, therefore, to think about it and to to understand it. If you believe in creation ex nihilo, you, you are doing metaphysics, because you're talking about the nature of reality and the nature of the relationship between God and the world. And so, if you interpret Genesis 1-1 as not teaching creation ex nihilo, which many contemporary evangelicals are doing, well, then you are, in effect, saying that the metaphysical view of creation ex nihilo is not the biblical teaching and it's not necessary for good theology. I would dispute that. And so, rather than pretending we're not doing metaphysics, we have to understand that it is integrally bound up with our exegesis and our doctrine. 
One of the things that I've really appreciated about reading this book is the way in which you talk about preaching in the church and the history of preaching in the church in in such positive terms. In, in chapter one, you speak about the gulf between academic hermeneutics and church preaching. I wonder if you could expand upon that a little bit or talk about that a little bit, because that I thought was something that a number of pastors whom I know who have read this book have really latched on to and appreciated. Well, uh, at, at the very beginning of the book, and the very first page of the preface, I described the conventional wisdom concerning hermeneutics today. And so I say that the conventional wisdom is that we should interpret the Bible like any other book, that the sole purpose of exegesis is to get at the original meaning of the human author in the historical situation. And allegorical interpretation is uh, dangerous because it allows you to be completely subjective and read any meaning into the text. And so the the idea of going to seminary and learning Greek and Hebrew and form criticism and uh, ancient history and archaeology is so that you will be prepared to recover the historical meaning of the text, something that lay people can't do. And so um, this whole idea is really problematic. I, I reject all of that description of hermeneutics. And I point to the fact that in the church, we have had a tradition of exegesis handed down from generation to generation, in which we do not follow what the academic hermeneutic textbooks tell us to do. And so there's a, there's a real gulf between reading The Cross of Christ by John R. W. Stott, where he understands Isaiah 53 to be a prophecy of the atoning death of Christ, and where he shows how deeply embedded that idea is in the New Testament. And so when I went to preach Isaiah 53 as a young pastor, it was more important to me that I was preaching it the way that John R. W. Stott preached it, even though I realized I was in conscious tension with the academic theory from my hermeneutics courses in seminary. So I think that the reason for this is because the seminary academic theory has been over-influenced by the Enlightenment in ways that the academics themselves are not always aware. And so I think this is why we, we need to, uh, to look to compare and reflect on how we interpret the Bible differently in the best of evangelical preaching versus what the academic textbooks say. You speak somewhat of allegorical interpretation, and as you mentioned just briefly, that also is a dreadful idea, perhaps, to many who are trained in the more modern approach, because isn't allegorical interpretation just a license for a kind of free-for-all? The only boundary would be the limit of one's own imagination. How is, and that's not what you're advocating, how is allegorical interpretation different than, say, postmodern reader response or something like that? Well, in a famous article called The Superiority of Pre-Critical Exegesis, the late David Steinmetz set it out this way. He said, you have on the one extreme, the single meaning theory, the idea that the only meaning of the text that's valid is what the original author meant to say to the original audience in the original situation, and that must be understood historically, by which we mean naturalistically. And then the other extreme is postmodern reader response theory, where these various theories, in the individual reader brings the meaning and reads it into the text. He said that the tradition of spiritual exegesis in the church, in the pre-modern church, all the way from the fathers right up until the Enlightenment, and then continuing on, actually, in the church, so that it's in Spurgeon, and it's in, it's in Stott, and it's in, it's in modern preaching as well, but not so much in the academy. But in the spiritual interpretation of the church, it's the via media, it's the middle way. It allows for more than one meaning in the text, but not for just any meaning. And the more than 
really comes from the fact of, of what Scripture is. So if you look at 1 Peter 1.10, Peter there talks about how the prophets themselves didn't fully understand the inspired text that they were producing. And they searched and inquired to see what did the Holy Spirit mean when he gave them these prophecies of the coming Messiah. And so the more, beyond the original human author's intention, the more that's in the text comes from the divine author. And so because it's the divine author speaking in the text, well, that means that, for example, one text will never contradict another because it's all inspired by the same divine author. So it's going to be consistent. So you have the unity of Scripture. You have the Christological center of Scripture. You have the prophecy fulfillment motif. So there's a lot of things that go into determining whether the census planwar or the more uh, of the interpretation is valid or not. It's not just subjectivism. It's all rooted in the objective fact of divine inspiration. I'm not surprised to hear you emphasize the divine author, because as you say, this work is in many respects a preamble to your own intended work on the classical Trinitarian theism of the Nicene tradition. How is it that our understanding of God in particular, on the one side requires certain metaphysical concepts or categories, and on the other side is going to determine and inform for us what we even understand the Bible to be? That is a complicated question, and I I can think of lots of things to say. I'm working on, on this issue right now, but I started out, actually, to write a book on the doctrine of God, and I was quite taken with the modern relational theisms and uh, some of the, the things that were being put forward today by people like John Zizioulis and the whole idea of relationality and God is, and so on. And, I, and really what I came to realize in the process of writing the book on the doctrine of God was how deeply intertwined the Nicene doctrine of God is with Nicene theological exegesis. The exegesis of Athanasius was critical in, you know, the Arian debate was essentially an, an exegetical debate. And so, what I came to realize was that the fathers in the fourth century were interpreting the scripture in a certain way. They were seeing Christ in the Old Testament. They were seeing the Old Testament speaking of Christ, and Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And their exegesis was going beyond what was seemingly allowed by modern hermeneutical rules in the modern period. And so, the validity of their understanding of God as transcendent creator and of Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament seemed to be intertwined with their exegesis. And that's what got me going on the exegesis. But I would like to suggest that you think of theology as a three-legged stool, and you have exegesis, you have dogma arising out of that exegesis, and out of that dogma come certain metaphysical implications, and then those metaphysical implications create a kind of worldview, and in that worldview you go back and you interpret Scripture. So, for example, you interpret Psalm 104 and you you understand God's providence and you understand that God is not only the remote deistic God, but he's intimately involved in every aspect of the world at all times. Well, then knowing that that idea of providence, you then you begin to see the, the metaphysical implications of that and you begin to think about things like compatibilism, a human free will and divine sovereignty and how they're compatible because they're on different levels. But then you bring that understanding back into your exegesis as you struggle to understand what does the Bible mean when it says that God spoke through the prophets? How could God speak through the prophets and it be God's word without inhibiting the prophet's freedom? 
So that's an example of the spiral that goes on. The exegesis leads to dogmatic understanding upon reflection, which then leads to metaphysical principles, which then leads to further exegesis. And the whole thing is interconnected and it's all one process uh, by which we are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Our time is running short, but I did want to ask you about these metaphysical ideas. You label the early church's perspective on the Bible, the pre-modern exegetical tradition, you label that as Christian Platonism. And I wonder if you could just explain a little bit what you mean by that, and then how that informed how these early Christians read the Bible and preached it. In the book, I deal with Augustine. And I deal with Book 7 of Confessions and Book 8 of the City of God. And it's a whole chapter, so I'll try to be brief. But essentially, Christian Platonism arises out of the fact that Augustine realizes that the only philosophers worth really dialoguing with are the Platonists. He rules out the Stoics and the Atomists and the Epicureans, the ones who don't believe in God or who are completely sunk into polytheism. He sees some things in the Platonic tradition broadly understood as being worthy of conversation. He's not uncritical of Platonism, and certainly the the Christian doctrines of creation and incarnation and eschatology transform Platonism, but there are certain things about Platonism that are helpful. For example, Platonism, unlike much modern thought, accepts the idea that there's a spiritual reality in addition to the material reality. Well, that's at least something that Christianity and Platonism have in common. And what I find strange is that the same people who are very nervous about Christian Platonism because they have an allergy to Platonism seem to be pretty blasé about materialistic ideas that are floating around in the modern world as if uh, modern mechanistic materialistic science wasn't a concern and Platonism was. And I think that we need to think about this a little more deeply. Dr. Carter, we're out of time, but thanks so much for giving us a few minutes today and Thank you again for your work on this. This is, as I said at the beginning, a provocative volume, a helpful volume in so many ways, Interpreting Scripture with the Great Tradition by Craig Carter. Thanks very much. You're welcome. All right. Well, we had a brief of a stimulating conversation with Craig Carter. I think our listeners will be able to hear just from his responses how earnest he is. And his book is not less earnest. If anything, it's more. Uh, One thing I appreciated was the punchiness of it. Now, he mentioned at the end that we didn't even get into part two of his book where he really plugs in the method that he's commending and shows how this works with the centrality of Christ in all of Scripture. And I think this is a theme that he's right. This resonates with the preacher, maybe not with the academy, but it does resonate with the preacher, and it also resonates with classical Christian theism and their approach to exegesis. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I agree with your overall assessment. I mean, one of the things that made this book so fun to read and makes it you know, an ongoing joy to discuss is it's a punchy book. He's throwing bombs. In fact, even that opening paragraph that he alluded to, he didn't read the whole thing. I actually considered reading the whole thing because it is provocative. It's a very provocative thesis. But in the second part, in part two, what he tries to do is he tries to give some constructive examples from the early church of interpreters who did this. So he talks about Ambrose of Milan, great teacher of Augustine's. He talks about Justin Martyr and Irenaeus. He talks about Augustine at length, as well he should. But then he even talks about origin and connects him with Calvin later on and and then returns again to Augustine at several points. So what you get in part two is the kind of fleshing out of these principles. How do they actually work themselves out in early Christian 
exegesis. So it's both inspiring and interesting, and it's immersing probably most of us in a world that's very different from the world of the commentaries that you're just going to use to prepare for your preaching on a Sunday. I think many readers are going to be surprised just to even see what pre-modern exegetes were doing. We're familiar with Calvin, who gives us, uh, I think, of you know, 20,000 pages of very straightforward literal commentary, but also allegorical in the good sense of seeing these lines as being drawn to Christ. But to really see how it works out and how different that is from sort of your standard modern academic commentary set that you might use. And to ask yourself, does this resonate with the message of Scripture itself as, taken as a whole? Yeah, and the other thing I would say to our listeners is this. You're not going to read part two and say, oh, great, now there's a whole other world of commentaries that I have to reckon with. I hadn't even considered this approach. I think what you're actually going to find, and he sort of comes back to this over and over again, is you'll find, oh, I'm doing things like this. This is kind of what the church does. Because the burden of his book is not to say that pastors need to change what they're doing, but in many respects, he's saying what churches have been doing is on the right track, but it's just totally dissonant from what academic theologians talk about. It's actually offering an interpretive and principled community that you can attach yourself to in preaching Christ from all of Scripture that did it in a healthy and a robust way. Yeah, he talks about the church as an interpretive community in very positive terms. Well, in any case, thank you for listening to this conversation. If you would like to enter to potentially win a copy of Interpreting Scripture with the Great Tradition, we'd love to have you do that. You can go to placefortruth.org, click on the Theology on the Go link, and there'll be an opportunity there for you to enter your information for the opportunity to win. And as always, we'd ask you to pass along Theology on the Go to others whom you think might benefit from it. And if you're able to donate, we can only do this because of the generosity of listeners like you. So if you can donate, there's a way for you to do that on placefortruth.org. You can click on the donate button or go to alliancenet.org and you can also donate there. And thanks for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.